We've been going through the book of Philippians. It's a short letter in the New Testament from the Apostle Paul to the church in Philippi, Macedonia. And I'm going to just start by reading our text for today. We are in chapter 2, verse 19 through 30. So follow along. It should be on the screen there or it's printed on the cover of your bulletin if you'd rather look at that. Or you can always do what we really should do and bring your Bible and hold that thing in your hand and read it. That's a good thing. All right, let's read this together. Philippians 2, 19 through 30. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your, men- and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but also on me, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Let's pray. Father, now as we go through this, I ask that you would illuminate these words and open them up to us and uh, make them real in a life-changing way. This is significant, not just as a, a, an add-on, a personal message, an errand in Philippians, but as, as a model for us. To uphold. And so, God, I just pray that, uh, that you would move today and that you would challenge us. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, we come to this point in Paul's letter, and if you have ever read straight through it, you might find this section a little bit odd or out of place. For one, it feels like Paul has finished the important stuff. We just got through the big Christ poem, the Christ hymn. Christ being in very nature God did not count equality with God, a thing to be exploited but emptied himself, and so on and so on. Huge theologically dense stuff. And so now we get into this personal message. It seems like he's just tidying up some errands, some personal matters. Now it's not uncommon to find personal greetings or errands attached to nearly all of Paul's letters, but they almost always come at the end. This one is right smack dab in the middle. So if you're reading straight through, you might come to this point and gain the impression that Paul is wrapping things up and that he's dealing with these personal issues. It's easy and tempting then to just sort of breeze right through this section without giving it much thought. But the unexpected thing is this. This little section is actually the hinge of the entire book of Philippians. This is the hinge point of the entire letter. Okay. Now, I know two weeks ago I said 
the earlier part of chapter 2 is probably one of the five most important sections in the whole Bible. I'm not saying that this matches up with that in a sense, but rather Paul's emphasis for this letter is here. And to illustrate that, I've got a little insert in your bulletin. It's got two sides to it. One side we'll get to in a little bit has a whole bunch of text. The other side is the structure of Philippians, which is adapted from an article I found by Peter J. Lightheart. But if you look at how Paul has laid out the message of Philippians, it's in the shape of what they call, literacy people call, as a chiasm. It has a structure. The first part and the last part are related in content. The second part and the second to the last part are related in content. Partnership in the gospel, then it ends with praise for the church's partnership of the gospel. Joy in imprisonment, joy in contentment in all circumstances. Live like citizens of the gospel. Uh, We are citizens in heaven and from it we await a savior and so on. The example of Christ's self-emptying obedience, which we looked at a couple weeks ago. And then Paul's self-emptying obedience. And then it all centers in and, and collapses down to this central point, Timothy and Epaphroditus. It all hinges here. Why? It's clearly much more intentionally thought out and more important than we might think. Why is this the main focus? Well, there's probably several practical reasons. Maybe they had already had a few letters back and forth and they'd asked Paul to send Timothy and so on. And so now he's he's addressing that concern and and then giving a whole bunch of background for why he's choosing to do what he's doing. I don't know. But there are probably also several clues that are evident in the text itself, especially verse 29 and 30. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Paul wants to illustrate What it means to pattern your life after the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus Christ, and what God has done. And he's upholding these two men as primary examples. And even his own interaction and choices, what he's going to do with them, as an example of a life that's being modeled after the gospel of Jesus Christ. We've been reading and talking about what it means to have the mind of Christ, to have a mind that's transformed by the gospel. He says, complete my joy by being of the same mind. And then later, let the same mind be in you as that of Christ Jesus. The gospel, the good news, that Jesus Christ, though being in very nature God, did not exploit that position, but emptied himself and took the form of a servant, became obedient to death, even death on a cross, paying for our sins, on the cross, offering a way for us to come into relationship with God, and therefore God has exalted him as Lord of all. It's the announcement that Jesus is Lord, and the Caesars of the world are not in control, ultimately, that our Lord, who paid for us with his blood and loves us, has the final authority and the final say over your life, over this world, over all of the things that we look at and say, oh man, We're fearful. This is bad news. What's going to happen? God gets the last word. Jesus has the final say. He is Lord. And that's the gospel. that's, That's the gospel. It's a message that has the power to save us and also to change the way we think. I think that C.S. Lewis put it well when he put it this way. 
having the mind of Christ. He says, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen. Not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. Having the mind of Christ that is shaped by the gospel, patterned after the gospel, changes the way we see everything else. And so it changes the way we live, changes the pattern of our life. But we can't stop there. It is a pattern for living. It must shape our actions. Receive him with joy and honor such men. Honor men like Epaphroditus and Timothy. Uphold him. Lift him up as a praiseworthy example. To be honest, I don't think that this is something that the church does very well. Honoring good examples of people who live out the gospel. We don't tend to uphold or exalt individuals very often, probably for some good reasons. For one, we're afraid of giving anyone too much credit because we don't want it to go to their heads. We don't want people to be in it for their own glory. We also don't want to make the mistake of upholding one or two servants, some superstar pastor, putting them on a pedestal, you know, that kind of a thing. So we're afraid to give praise too eagerly because it's not a one-man show. And these are all noble things. These are good reasons. We don't want to play favorites. If I honor someone for something they've done, does that mean that I don't think that other people deserve much honor? I don't want to offend anybody. But the downside of that is that we don't have many people pointing out practical examples. That's what it looks like. This is what it looks like to apply the mind of Christ in the workplace. Or that's what it looks like. This is a perfect example of the pattern of Christ's self-emptying service and love in the family or in the community. Honor that. Let's uphold that. Let's champion that and strive for that. But for some reason, the idea of championing certain people leaves a bad taste in our mouths. But I submit to you that the danger probably isn't so much in honoring certain people. But rather the danger is that as humans, we tend to uphold and honor the wrong things. Or at least to neglect to notice the things that are truly praiseworthy in God's eyes. So a little thought experiment for you. When you think of someone who is praiseworthy, what do you think of? When you think of a modern success story, I'm not just talking about like in the church or or Christians. I'm talking about in general, in the world. What do you think of as success? What do you think of as deserving of merit or praise or honor? Um, I remember one of the proudest moments of my life. Uh, I was uh, in high school, and ever since I was nine years old, I was on the swim team. And so I was always a swimmer. And... uh, my senior year of high school, I ended up being captain of the swim team, went to, to state. I went to state every year of high school, but I, I took fifth in state in Alaska, and that was, that was cool. It was a big deal. But that was like, that ended in the beginning of November, and then we had the whole rest of the school year, and at the end of the school year, we had an award ceremony. This is bothering me because it's going to run out of batteries, so I just had to turn it off. It's not working. I'm just going to leave it alone. Um... We had an award ceremony, and I almost skipped the award ceremony. 
Because I was like, yeah, I don't care about seeing a bunch of people get promoted on a stage or whatever, you know, all this stuff. But I went to the award ceremony. Someone convinced me to go because they were like, well, you were on a swim team, weren't you? You might get an award. And I was like, okay, I'll, I'll go to the, the award ceremony. So I went and, um, and we're sitting there and they, they start going through the various sports and cheerleading and drill team and all this different stuff and, they, and clubs and they award usually one male, one female who is kind of outstanding in that area. And so uh, it came to swimming, and sure enough, I got the award for, um, I don't know, whatever, for, for the swim team that year, for, for the men's swim team. Now, that's cool, uh, but nobody cares about swimming, okay? Like football, well, here, football, not up there. They didn't have football at the time. Basketball is huge in Ketchikan, Alaska. All the basketball players are super popular. They're the, you know, the jocks. They're, you know, they're, they're the ones everyone looks at, you don't want to go to a swim meet, it's kind of boring, and the guys are in Speedos, and you know, it's just, whoa, excuse me, um, anyway, so, so, yeah, cool, I got an award, but then, they said there's this one award, They're like, now, every year, the, the Army National Guard presents one award to one male, one female, who, who represent outstanding athletic excellence and achievement, and this year, they presented me with that award. I was just shocked. I was like, I didn't even know people knew I existed. I just, and I, so I go up and I received this award and it was so fun because the star player of the basketball team was in my next class. And I went in that class and I've got this plaque with this huge medal on it. And this is like awesome. And I'm sitting there and someone else uh, says to that star basketball player, they're like, hey, Tom. How come you didn't get that award? And I, and I heard, I heard those words. I look, and this kid is just like glaring. He's just like looking down. He's just ticked. You know, it was, it was pretty awesome. So that was my moment to shine. You know, I was, I was incredibly thrilled by that. Um, that tends to be the kind of thing we think about when we think of success or people that we honor or lift up. What kinds of things do we champion? But how does our world, so how does our worldview honor people and success? But who does God honor? What does he define as success? What does he see as praiseworthy or noteworthy? That's the question. Verse 30 says, For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. That word service there is a unique word. There's different kinds of service. Earlier when he says, Timothy served with me, he used the word doulos, which is like to serve as a slave or a bondservant. The other people are servants, and the word is diakonos or diakonia, like just a, a deacon, a servant. Um, this is the word liturgia, which is the word from which we get the word liturgy. If you've ever been in a more traditional church, you might call it a liturgical church. Actually, every church has a liturgy. It's just the order of service, right? It's a, we start with a few songs, and we do communion, then we have a, a, a message and some kind of response, and the sending out, and we go home. That's a liturgy, okay? Uh, Paul is, is saying that Epaphroditus was filling up what was lacking in the church's liturgia, service to him. It carries the connotation of a priest in the temple offering sacrifices 
to God on behalf of someone else. That's that kind of service. That's liturgia. And why do I bring that up? Epaphroditus had been sent on behalf of the church in Philippi to make an 800-mile journey on foot to bring gifts to Paul while he was in prison and to care for Paul's needs. Somewhere along the way, he had become deathly ill, yet he was not deterred. He preserved, he, he, he persevered, and carried out this service to Paul. And so Paul sees that as an act of liturgia. In chapter 4, he says that the gifts that Epaphroditus brought were a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. So Paul is saying, hey, what you did was more than just a nice consolation or gift. Epaphroditus is patterning his life after the liturgy of the gospel, the order of the gospel. And that is praiseworthy. And to show what I mean by that, we've got another illustration. How is Paul illustrating these men and his dealings with them as patterning their lives after the gospel? Check out this handout. On the left-hand column, you have Philippians 2, 1 through 9. It really goes 5 through 11, but there's some stuff included at the intro to it also. That's the gospel. That's the Christ poem. That's the announcement of Jesus' lordship that we talked about two weeks ago. And if you take that text and just lay it on top of this text about Timothy and Epaphroditus, you see every theme there. It just kind of matches up perfectly to show that what Timothy and Epaphroditus and what Paul is doing with them is being informed by what God has done with his son, Jesus Christ. And so if you look at the color-coded sections, they follow the order. They follow the pattern. There's kind of a repeat of information. And I don't know how fully or how intentionally Paul lined this all up. I just sort of found it and the themes were there and it worked. And I'm not going to go through it all because we don't have time. So you can kind of study that on your own as you go home. But just as the Father sends the Son, so too Paul is sending Timothy. Just as Epaphroditus uh, almost died in his mission to serve Christ by serving Paul, so too Jesus Christ became obedient to the point of death. And just as therefore God exalted Jesus, so too Paul now says, honor Epaphroditus. These are the things that are noteworthy. These are the things that are honorable. And it's all patterned after the liturgy, the life that derives from and takes its cue from the gospel. So I want to look at and break down four main characteristics of what a life looks like that is patterned after the gospel of Jesus Christ. What is noteworthy here? And I'm drawing some of these from a pastor that I heard named... Where do I have it? Because I forgot it. Richard Kaufman in a message called Servant Hearts. But I'm kind of, uh, he had five points and I'm, I'm adjusting it a little bit. But first of all, the first criteria for what is noteworthy or success in God's eyes. First one is presence before power or profits. Presence, with a C-E, not a T-S. Presence before power or profits. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon. Paul wants to come and be personally present with these people, but he can't at this point. He wants to hold off a little 
before sending Timothy so that he can see how this trial is going to turn out, presumably. And then perhaps he himself will be able to go to Philippi as well. But if he can't, why Timothy? Why does he say, I want to send Timothy? When you look at the personal greetings at the end of this letter, you get the impression that Paul is in communication with quite a few other Christians who are there in Rome, if in fact this is Rome, where he's writing from. He could send a number of people. The whole household of Caesar sends their greetings to you. They all want to say hi. There's a lot of brothers and sisters here. They, they, they want to say hi to you and so on. So there's a lot of people. Why does he say Timothy? What's the nature of this errand? Couldn't Paul just grab one of his comrades and say, hey, would you please go and check in with the church in Philippi, smooth over any disputes with any instructions, and report back to me on how things are going? Simple enough. Why Timothy? Because Paul is patterning his own actions after the gospel. He is taking his cue from the incarnation. That is, Jesus, being in very nature God, didn't count his position as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave and being born in human likeness. God withheld nothing. He sent his own son to be personally present with us. Let's talk about Timothy. Paul says, I have no one else like Timothy who will show genuine concern for your welfare. There's a level of maturity here. We talked about that word splankna two weeks ago. That intestinal gut-felt concern and compassion. Paul doesn't want anyone to go. Just anyone to go. He wants the one who will represent Paul's very heart. And also the very heart of Christ. He wants to send his own presence to the church in Philippi. Not just a messenger. He wants that heart to be aligned with the interests of Christ. Verse 21, everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. But Timothy has your concerns genuinely in mind. And I want to just take a moment to point out, when you're genuinely concerned for the welfare of others, as we said during communion time, you're not just concerned for them, but you're concerned for the interests of Jesus himself. And that's important to know. We also see this near the end of the passage. It says, Honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Paul is sending Timothy because his concern isn't just to get the job done. Paul sends Timothy his very best. He sends the very best to go to Philippi because Timothy will incarnate the best representation of Paul himself. Paul says, as a son with his father, he has served with me in the gospel. Timothy is like a son to Paul. And for God so loved the world that he didn't consider his position as something to be exploited, but he sent his one and only son. That's my paraphrase of John 3.16 combined with Philippians 2. As God sent his own son, so too Paul chooses and takes a cue from the gospel to send his own son, his spiritual son. God, being all-powerful, chose to incarnate his presence among us. So too Paul chooses to incarnate his own presence by proxy 
through Timothy to the church in Philippi. Just as Philippi had sent their representative, Epaphroditus, to Paul. In God's eyes, your presence is far more valuable than your position. Your presence, your compassion, your heart for someone else is way bigger than your accomplishments. That's success. These are the concerns of Christ. Don't just send a card. Show up. Don't just use your authority or position to get the job done, but share in Christ's concerns for the welfare of everyone involved. Be present. Or by proxy, give your best. Give the best. Presence before power or profit. That was the first one. The second one is character before conformity. Character before conformity. What kind of character does God value? What, what, uh, the, the kind that takes its cue from the gospel of Christ. Back in verse 4, or in your handout, the first purple section on the left column, up on the left are the purple ones, says, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also the interests of others. And now he says of Timothy, everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself. How has Timothy proved his character? Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who emptied himself, taking the form of a slave. Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the gospel. And again, that word served is the word doulos, the kind of service that is pointing towards a slave or a bondservant. Timothy has emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, and thus proven himself over time. Just as Christ emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, And became obedient unto death. Timothy has taken his cue for the pattern of his life from the gospel. Just as Jesus emptied himself as a servant, so too Timothy has emptied himself as a servant. The kind of character that God values is that of humility. Those who humble themselves will be exalted. Those who exalt themselves will be humbled, Jesus says. It's easy to conform to the world's view of success, to crave recognition, applause, and fame. But what God is looking for is a servant heart. I was trying to find, I remember a story that was in C.S. Lewis's The Great Divorce, and I couldn't find it, so I'm going to have to like retell it as best I can remember. But it's a, there's a part in the story, there. Uh, it's kind of an interesting allegory in which a character in a, is on a bus that sort of is able to come up out of hell and have the opportunity to be presented with something of heaven and, and have the opportunity to choose to reject themselves and, and to, but almost nobody does, um, to actually um, choose heaven. And there's a character that the main character sees. He's, he's one of the bus characters. And that character, this, this woman comes down and she has this entourage of children who just adore her and I don't remember all of it. There might be little animals and stuff like just this 
noble, beautiful woman, and the, and the main character is asking his mentor, he's saying, who is that? You know, surely she, she must be someone of great renown and esteem and so on. And his mentor says, oh, well, you would never know her from your life on earth. On earth, she was just an ordinary housemaid. But the impact she had is what's being reflected here. You know, this is who she really is. A servant heart. Character before conformity. The one who empties himself. That was number two. Number three, cooperation before competition. Verse 25 says, I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. I think I made the point in a recent message. Paul was Jesus' star quarterback. I mean, this guy planted more churches than anyone, made a bigger impact on worldwide culture than anyone else in the history of the world, literally. Yet he acknowledges that it's through the prayers and support of other Christians and through the Holy Spirit that God will work his situation for his ultimate good. That was back in chapter 1. Notice how he refers to Epaphroditus. My brother, my fellow worker, and fellow soldier. The Christian life is a family, it's a workforce, and it's an army. It's a family, brothers, sisters, sons and daughters who share the same father. It's a workforce. We are united together behind a common cause. There's a goal, there's a mission at hand that unites us, a purpose. And therefore, we must work together. And it is an army because there is a fight There's spiritual warfare going on. We need each other in the spiritual warfare that's taking place over our lives and over our world. Today, the kinds of people that the world typically upholds are the star players, the Steve Jobs, the Michael Jordans. They single them out as the lone warriors, the champions, the heroes. But we all tend, and we all tend to want to be like these people. We want to say, I did this. I deserve the credit. Look at me. Now, I don't believe that all competition is bad or that there isn't a place for healthy competition. And yet, in almost every case, all those people who get all the glory, they rarely reach their accomplishments without the benefit of a team. I remember when Russell Wilson was leading the Super Bowl and and when the Seahawks actually won the Super Bowl a few years ago. And the thing that the NFL always does is they always highlight the quarterback, right? You always see the quarterback as a representation of the team. So there's Russell Wilson everywhere. But the thing about Russell Wilson is that he was a decent quarterback, but his stats weren't actually nearly as good as a lot of other quarterbacks out there. So it was always a little awkward to see that because what really made it for the Seahawks that year was the team, not the quarterback necessarily. He did his job. He did a good job, but he knew what his strengths were and he knew how to use the strengths of the team. Okay, And, and so it's just kind of funny 
you know, to see that. The power was in the team. Do you have that kind of cooperation in your life? Richard Kaufman made a good point that this seems to be easier for women than for men. I don't know about you or where you fit into that, but men tend to hold one another at arm's length. Because if you let people get too close, then someone may use that against you eventually. We still want to hold on to the edge. We view cooperation as weakness and limiting to our own glory. But God upholds the team. And the individual heroes in God's eyes are the ones who put the team first. Is there cooperation in your life? Do you have relationships like that in your life? Is there someone in your life that you can say, this to me is a brother, a fellow co-worker, and a fellow soldier in the gospel? If you don't have that, you're not living the Christian life. You can't do it alone apart from a team. You're not helping the team, and the team isn't helping you. And if Paul needed that, if Paul, the star quarterback, needed the team, so do you. Cooperation before competition. Number four is commitment to service before security. Verse 27, indeed he was ill, Epaphroditus, near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. I want you to consider the character of this man, Epaphroditus. He sets out on this long journey, 800 miles or so on foot, to serve the needs of Paul on behalf of the Philippians. To serve the work of Christ, Paul says. He becomes ill and almost dies, but he doesn't give up. He keeps going. He remains obedient unto death. He took his cue from the gospel and he patterned his own life after that of Christ. Being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted Jesus. And Paul says, honor such men. Honor such men as this. We are severely addicted to comfort and security. We can set out with noble intentions and commitments, but when things get uncomfortable or inconvenient... We bow out. But the things that really matter in God's eyes, they come with a price tag. They come with a level of sacrifice. When Epaphroditus became ill, he had a good excuse, but he didn't bail out. Notice how he says, he longs for you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. Isn't that backwards? He's not distressed about his own illness. He's distressed over his friend's worry and concern. When I get sick, I'm distressed, and I want people to know about it. You know, I'm, I'm sick. Feel sorry for me. Show sympathy for me. Come on, I'll just, I'll just eat this up. 
feels good. Thank you very much. We tend to say that we'll commit to service, but as soon as our own security is threatened, service takes a back seat. I think we all wrestle with this to some extent. We pursue comfort and security over the work of Christ. And I certainly don't mean to be manipulative here. It's easy for the church to guilt people into serving on their own programs and their own teams. But having the concerns of Christ means showing genuine concern over the welfare of others, as Timothy did, and as Epaphroditus demonstrates, both for Paul and for his friends. That means that may mean your own family, your coworkers, a guy that you met in the checkout line. But if you want to know the kind of criteria that God exalts and honors as success, it can be boiled down to that one statement, obedience unto death. Obedience unto death. To die to ourself. To die to our own needs for acclaim. To die for our own needs for security, for conformity above character. To die to our own needs for competition, glory. So there you have it. Four things. Presence before power and profits. Character before conformity. Cooperation before competition. And commitment to service and security. Or before security. Now if you're like me, you probably see this list and immediately feel a sense of guilt or dread. I know I do. Because I can immediately think, without even trying very hard, of multiple instances in which I choose position or profit over presence, conformity over character, personal glory and competition over cooperation, and a commitment to security over service. So how do we respond to this? What do we do? First, I believe that conviction is from God, but condemnation is not. Guilt is from Satan. That kind of guilt anyway. Condemnation. If you are in Christ, God already sees you as he sees his son. Into whose image we are being transformed. So have peace about that. If we go forward trying to earn that favor, we will only burn ourselves out. Paul says in chapter 3, verse 7 through 9, Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. The first thing we have to do is to know Jesus, to know him more, to know him and the power of his resurrection that we might be found blameless in him. The good news is that Jesus lived the life that we should have lived. He chose Presence over power. Character over conformity. Cooperation over competition. And obedience unto death for you. 
So that by faith, our sin is reckoned to him on the cross and his righteousness is credited to us, not our own righteousness through good works, but a righteousness that is given as a gift and received by faith. If you are in Christ, then when God sees you, he already sees a success. He already sees noteworthy, nobility, not your failures. But the gospel is not only meant to move in you. It is now meant to move through you. Redefine. So number one, know Jesus and know him more. Number two, redefine success. Redefine what is honorable and praiseworthy according to the gospel. Everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But Timothy has proved himself. He emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. Learn to understand what are the interests of Christ. Do not only look out for your own interests, but also the interests of others, those of Christ. Epaphroditus nearly died for the work of Christ, not just the work of serving Paul in prison on behalf of his friends in Philippi. No, this is the work of Christ. Jesus became obedient to the point of death. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every other name. So too, Epaphroditus became obedient to the point of death. And therefore, God says, honor such men. Honor such men. What is real success? What is truly praiseworthy? Real success, real honor, is obedience unto death. Third, get people in your life who will be brothers, fellow workers, and fellow soldiers for you. Cooperation, not competition. And fourth, honor such men and women whose lives are being patterned after the liturgy of the gospel. No, we don't want to give people a big head. No, we don't want to raise up superstars and give them all the glory. But when you see someone serving, whether quietly or whatever it is, when you see someone patterning their life after the, what you've seen in Jesus, recognize it. Uphold it. Say, hey, I just want to encourage you and say, what you just did right there, that was the gospel. That was patterning your life after Jesus. That was emptying yourself. That was becoming a servant. That was laying down personal acclaim and status. That was cooperation instead of competition. That was vulnerability. That was the gospel. And, and let's, let's honor that. Let's uphold that together. Don't be afraid to do that. And lastly, pattern your own life after the gospel of Jesus Christ. How does Paul know what to write? How does Paul know what decisions to make? How does he know what to do? He looks and he says, I'll take my cue from here. And every detail is modeled accordingly. This gospel, it's not just a formula for you. It's not just a formula for salvation. It's a pattern for life. So let's live it accordingly. Let's pray. <clears throat>
Father, if there's anyone here who doesn't know Jesus, I pray they'd have the courage and humility to come and to talk to someone, to one of us today, about what that is about and how they can do that and how they can receive this gift of grace and righteousness that comes from God through faith based on your work and not ours. And Lord, for those who know Jesus today, I pray that we would be illuminated by the tenacity at which Paul, a servant of the gospel, patterned his own actions and was able to recognize when he saw people's minds and hearts and actions change after the pattern of Jesus Christ. Taking the very declaration of our faith and mapping it onto someone's life. God, I pray you'd give us the wisdom and the security, the ability to choose presence before position or power or profit. To choose character before conformity. To empty ourselves as Christ emptied himself. To choose cooperation before competition. To get vulnerable and empty ourselves enough to say, I need a brother, a sister. I need a coworker, and I need a fellow soldier because I am not Superman. I cannot do this battle alone. God, give us the ability to commit to service before security. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.